Hello and welcome to this episode of Southeast Asia Dispatches brought to you by New Narrative. I'm your host, PJ Thang. Southeast Asia Dispatches is a fortnightly podcast series bringing you news, interviews and perspectives from around the region. In this episode, we speak to a Thai democracy and human rights activist about his arrest under the country's less majesty law. We also look at the difficulties of reporting on the Rohingya in Myanmar and Bangladesh. Thailand has an extremely harsh law criminalizing insulting the royal family. This is known as the Less Majesty Law. This law makes scrutiny of the wealthy and powerful royal family all but impossible inside the kingdom. The law has been often criticized for its unclear boundaries and broad application, which leaves it open to political abuse. Adam Bemmer spoke to Thai democracy and human rights activist Pai Jatupat about his arrest under this law, the charges he is currently facing for sedition, and his fight against injustice. Hello, my name is Pai Jatupat Laksa. This is Pai Jatupat, formerly known as Pai Daudin, because of his association with the Daudin Law Student Group at the University of Konken. Pai is a 28-year-old democracy and human rights activist living in northeastern Thailand. He was released from prison last May after serving a two-year sentence for violating Article 112 of the Thai Criminal Code. This charge is known as Les Majeste, or the Royal Insult Law. Pai's case was unique in that he was sentenced for sharing a BBC Thai biography of the new king to his Facebook page. Pai says that like most Facebook users, he likes sharing interesting articles with his friends and followers. But what the pro-democracy activist didn't realize was that his Facebook account was being monitored. Others had fallen foul of the Les Majesté law for content posted online. In 2017, Another Thai man was sentenced to 35 years in prison for insulting the monarchy on Facebook. His sentence is reported to be one of the harshest to date. David Streckvis is the author of Truth on Trial in Thailand and an independent scholar based in Konken. He says most Les Majestés convictions now come from social media posts. Pai's case, it was interesting in the sense that it would have been a, at first Pai wanted to fight it. And it would have been a really interesting case because it, it would have forced them to to say that the BBC itself had violated Les Majestés. Thai authorities didn't file any charges against the BBC Thai Bangkok office. It's believed that Thai authorities may have targeted Pai because of his vocal criticism of the former military junta, the National Council for Peace and Order, or NCPO. This is the group that took power in a 2014 coup. Its leader and current prime minister, Prayut Chan-o-cha visited Konken shortly after taking power. Pai led a local protest against Prayut, sporting a t-shirt that said, No to coup d'etat. On the first anniversary of the coup in 2015, Pai led another protest in Konken against the military. Anon Chawalawan is a researcher at ILAW, Thailand's Freedom of Expression Documentation Center. Anon has followed Pai's case closely. It's a bit complicated, especially for those who are not in Thailand and follow Thai politics. But uh, just to make it simple, uh, on the 22nd May 2015, which was the uh, anniversary of the coup, a group of students gathered uh, in Bangkok and also in Konkan. So Pai and his friend gathered in Konkan. 
while there are other student group gather in the city center of Bangkok, so they protest. And of course, they were charged for defy the NCPO decree, which prohibits the political gathering of five people and above. The military order banning Thais from holding protests was abolished earlier this year. This moved all cases against political activists from military to civil courts. A Bangkok court recently dismissed all charges filed by NCPO order against democracy activists. But Pai and several others are still facing charges of violating Article 116 of the Thai Criminal Code. This is the charge of sedition, or inciting people to rebel against the state or monarch. David assumes Pai will be tied up in court for years to come. When the Les Majesty Law is engaged, it becomes this question about monarchism, people's feeling toward the institution and its insult. Sedition brings up a whole different discourse that could it could could prove interesting because and it, it's a harder case to make in the sense that um, you're doing something against the nation to undermine the nation. Pai says he doesn't accept this sedition charge and is still waiting for a court date to be set. He had to report to the police upon his release from prison to hear the accusations made against him. This charge stems from the 2015 protest against the coup. Back then, Pai and his Daodin colleagues didn't report to police in Konken to face charges of violating the NCPO order. Instead, they made the journey to Bangkok to join other activists in a symbolic event on the 24th of June, 2015. This is the date to commemorate Thailand's 1932 transition from absolute to constitutional monarchy. Pai didn't receive any formal charge of sedition until this year, once released from prison. The charge mirrors that which was handed to Future Forward Party co-founder Tanaton Juangrungwangkit last April. Tanaton is accused of helping Pai and other protesters escape arrest. Pai is hoping for the case to be dismissed. He now works at the Human Rights Center at the University of Konken, educating law students about the history of the Isan region and its people. Pai is banned from politics for the next 10 years. This means he can't apply to be a member of any political party. But he says this won't deter him from continuing his work fighting injustice. If you are in prison for any period of time, regardless of your sentence, you have to abstain from being membership to a political party for 10 years. And Sin Pai is like a political activist and I guess he have potential to become politician if he wished to, but he has no opportunity because it like he will be banned for ten years. I think if he wished to become a lawyer, I think he can still be a lawyer, um, because there was uh, another lawyer who facing less majest and sedition chart. He's now come back and work as a lawyer again. That special report was brought to you by Adam Bemmer from Thailand. In our second story, with Aung San Suu Kyi in court defending her government over the Rohingya crisis, we revisit the crisis and the barriers some journalists face when reporting about it. In this piece, Victoria Milko highlights how these barriers go beyond certain governmental restrictions, but are also perpetuated by some local human rights activists and organisations. She looks back at some of her own experiences in reporting on the Rohingya from both sides of the border in Myanmar and Bangladesh. 
I remember sitting in the world's most populated refugee camp, a Bangladeshi special branch security officer by my side as I tried to conduct interviews with my reporting partner, when I thought to myself, isn't it supposed to be easier to report on the Rohingya from this side of the border? And then it dawned on me. Despite being detained at the border, despite being followed by Bangladeshi intelligence day and night, despite being nearly denied entry to the country at all, it is still easier to report on the Rohingya from Bangladesh than it is from their home country of Myanmar. The Rohingya are a stateless, predominantly Muslim ethnic minority in Myanmar who have faced persecution for decades. Over the years, various waves of Rohingya refugees have settled in neighboring Bangladesh. The largest wave of refugees came in August 2017, when the Burmese military launched what they called clearance operations in Rakhine after the Iraq and Rohingya Salvation Army, known as ARSA, attacked police outposts in the state. The attacks by the Burmese military were swift and brutal. In the weeks following the military crackdown, it's estimated by the United Nations that over 740,000 Rohingya fled their homes, crossing by river, sea, and land into neighboring Bangladesh as their villages were burned and their fellow Rohingya raped and murdered. The attacks have been said to have the hallmarks of genocide by UN officials and are now the subject of a trial at the International Court of Justice while the International Criminal Court is concurrently leading a preliminary investigation. As a reporter based in Myanmar, it's been my responsibility to report on the ongoing crisis with as much accuracy, fairness, and transparency as possible. Yet it's been nearly impossible to do so in Myanmar due to the government doing what it can to erase the existence of the Rohingya. In Myanmar, the Rohingya are not listed on the official list of races that was arbitrarily created by a previous military government. In the eyes of most people I've spoken to in Myanmar, the Rohingya don't exist. They're illegal Bengalis, they tell me, implying the Rohingya are illegal immigrants from Bangladesh and therefore not permitted the same rights as citizens of Myanmar. Using the word Rohingya instead of Bengali with almost all government officials or local human rights activists and organizations will earn you a spot on their blacklist. Emails go unanswered, phone calls hung up on, lips pursed and indignant chuckles given during face-to-face -face interviews when the word is used. Visiting Rakhine, where the majority of Rohingya are from and reside in Myanmar today, is out of the question. Government-led tours with severely restricted access are the only exception. You can go to Sitwe, the state's capital city and one of the very few places foreigners are allowed to access in Rakhine. But there, the Rohingya are forced to stay in camps, surrounded by barbed wire and tall concrete walls. No one allowed in, no one allowed out. I tried to visit the Rohingya in Sitwe in 2017, months before the attacks occurred but I was denied access by the government with no explanation. Cannot, they said, waving me away from the local government office. Go back to Yangon now. This sentiment is echoed by the highest levels of government as well. The same week that the ICC ruled it had jurisdiction to investigate Myanmar was also the same week that two Reuters journalists were sentenced to seven years in prison for reporting on a Burmese military-created mass grave of Rohingya. The message to the press seemed pretty clear. I'm lucky I was even able to get into Myanmar. Several of my journalists and non-governmental organization friends have told me tales of being denied visas, waiting for weeks in Bangkok only to learn later that the government never intended to give them a visa in the first place. And it isn't just the Myanmar government that's setting up barriers to in-depth reporting. It's becoming increasingly difficult to get any United Nations body within Myanmar to speak on record. These officials fear losing the little access they have if they upset the central government. The few other UN and NGO agencies that have access to the Rohingya population in Myanmar also widely refuse to speak to the media as well. 
An internet blackout in parts of Rakhine has also further diminished the ability to get information, requiring people to rely on unsecured ways of getting information, like CDs of photographs and information being delivered by a bus to Sitway, where the internet isn't restricted. As a Burmese dissident who was involved in the underground movement during the military's total control told me, for people there, it's like the darkest days of the military control all over again. Having this information and these experiences, I knew that I would have to go to Bangladesh in order to report on the Rohingya the way I wanted to, without the influence of the Myanmar government. So after saving thousands of dollars to pay for the expenses it would take, I went. A majority of those who fled over two years ago and the years before remain in the camps in Cox's Bazar, Bangladesh, living in cramped conditions and granted subpar human rights. As you approach the camps via one of the uneven roads, cell phone reception becomes spotty, sometimes failing altogether. Upon entering the camps, you don't realize it at first, but the bamboo and tarp structures quickly become crowded. The smell of thousands of people being crammed into small spaces starts to penetrate your nostrils. You hear people all around you, even if you can't see them, many of them staying inside their hot makeshift huts. It's hard to understand the size and scope of the camps and the people that live inside of them, even from the top of a hill that shows you an endless horizon of displaced people. Walking through the camps for the first time, nearly two years after the attacks, I felt grateful to even be there. The day before, my reporting partner and I were pulled out of immigration line and taken to a counter where we spent hours watching various men with several phones ignoring our journalist visas, instead looking at our passports filled with Myanmar stamps, questioning us and making calls to what I can only assume were various security and intelligence agencies. At one point, a woman working there said to us, it's because you're from Myanmar. We hate Myanmar. Look at the problems they cause for us. Eventually, we were let through, grateful that our seven-day visas wouldn't go to waste. But the troubles were far from over. In the following days, we were followed by plainclothes special branch security. Our translator was harassed and questioned about our activities on a daily basis, even held late into the hours of the night without his family knowing where he was. Police patrolled our hotel lobby, calling in our location and taking notes on our movements as we went. Even in the camps, we were followed, and closely. After the special branch police came into a hut and sat next to us during an interview, we had to call our sources, tell them what was happening, and request the interviews be done over the phone instead. Again, I asked myself, I thought it was supposed to be easier to report on the Rohingya from here. But that was the thing. It was. At the start of the year, I realized that my inability to report on the Rohingya in Myanmar as I would like had another impact on me. It made me feel like the crisis wasn't a Myanmar issue, but instead a Bangladeshi issue. As soon as the thought came, I felt sick and realized how wrong that notion was, given that I lived in the country where the Rohingya are from, and where documentation in numerous international human rights organizations shows mass atrocities have happened. But I think that's something that can happen when you can't meet, speak to, or photograph someone. When the government repeatedly tells you that they don't exist, and international human rights organizations refuse to even use the word Rohingya themselves you end up feeling more detached from it. It's important to remember that the difficulties of reporting on the Rohingya are done in a deliberate way by the Myanmar government and military. Ethnic cleansing, genocide, these things don't happen all at once. They're a process, and the continued restrictions and actions by the Myanmar government are a deliberate part of that process. Without continued reporting about the Rohingya crisis from both sides of the border, it will fade from memory. That opinion piece was brought to you by Victoria Milko. And that's all for this episode. We'd like to thank our contributors, Adam Bemma and Victoria Milko, for making this episode possible. Check out our website at newnarrative.com hello for more stories from Southeast Asia. And if you'd like to support what we're doing, then please consider subscribing to New Narrative at newnarrative.com job. 
Subscriptions start at just 52 US dollars a year. That's just one US dollar a week. This is PJ Thumb wishing all of our listeners a great week ahead. Sampai jumpa.